0: There are a host of things we can say about this text, but I want to say today just one thing that I want us to just meditate on for a half an hour or so. One truth, here it is. God created you to reflect his image. God created you to reflect his image. In contrast to the way everyone else speaks of significance, by focusing on self, what I think, what I like, what satisfies me, my way. Did you hear what God said? We sometimes slide right over these words where they are familiar to us. But this account of the sixth day of creation gives us several indicators that something very special is happening here that we ought not just slide by. Let me just tell you how how we see that, how the text carefully is crafted to hold this truth before us. First of all, the account of every day of creation has begun, and God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. Or in a few cases, let the earth bring forth. But here we read, and God said, let us make. Not let there be, let us make. As John Calvin noted, God's commanding changed to consultation. Now Calvin goes on to say, This is the highest honor with which he has dignified us. For God is not just now first beginning to consider what form he will give to man. And with what endowments? What endowment would be fitting to adorn him? Nor nor is he pausing over a work of difficulty, but the creation of the world was distributed over six days for our sake, for the purpose of commending to our attention the dignity of our nature. God, in taking counsel together, According creating the concerning the creation of man testifies that he is about to undertake something very great and wonderful to make man in his image. Second reason we see that it's something special is happening is, is again in the previous days accounts we see that everything was made. Each according to its kind. Even in the first part of the sixth day, how many times did we hear that phrase? Each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. Each according to its own kind. But concerning man, God says, make him in our image. In our image. Something's changed something really significant is happening it's not just another creature each according to his kind it's god making man in his image according to his kind thirdly we see it also in the use we see the significance of this also in the use of the word create hebrew word is bara create Uh, As I mentioned before, this uh, word is used only a limited number of times in the creation story. It's actually only used in three different places. All the rest of the time, it says that God formed, or God made, or God divided, God separated, God set. Three times, it talks about God creating. The first is in verse 1, where it says God created the heaven and the earth, where he made everything out of nothing. That's the first time. The second time... When god created the first conscious life conscious life verse 21 and then thirdly when god created man in verse 27 very limited word only used three times in his whole creation account or three places which makes the third place so much more significant for in that third place God uses the word create three times in reference to man. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. This wonderful word of which God can only be the subject applied only three times and the third time three times to man. In case we missed the point, if you turn over a couple of pages to chapter 5, we read, this is the written account of Adam's line, when God, here it is again, created, number one, man, he made him in his, in the likeness of God, he created to them male and female and blessed them, and when they were thirdly created, he, filled, he called them man. Francis Schaeffer comments, it is as though God put exclamation points here to indicate that there is something special about the creation of man. You see, God wants to make a point. God who made man's mouth knows how to use language and he is making a point. He wants us to not miss the fact that he created us different. He created us to bear his image. So what exactly does that mean? In what way are we created to be image bearers of God? It's a hard subject, and many things have been written about it. Whole books have been written about it. For obviously, there's much about us that's very similar to the animals creation we're all made on the sixth day we eat the same things for food we're all blessed and sent to reproduce and fill the earth of course when we study man and animals we see all hosts of similarities. but while there is so much that is similar God puts the emphasis on what is unique And what is unique is that we bear the image of God. You see that reflected in Psalm 8. There we read that that man is made a little lower than the angels. And then in the next verse, that the flocks and herds and beasts of the field and birds of the air and the fish of the sea are put under his feet. So you've got the angels and you've got the beasts and you've got man. But notice God did not say the man was made a little higher than the animals. He said man is made a little lower than the angels. Such is the significance of being made an image of God. As I studied this this week, one of the most helpful discussions I read about what this actually means was from Dr. James Boyce. He suggests three things that it means to be made in the image of God. Let me just pass them on to you. First of all, he says it means men and women possess the attributes of personality as God himself does. God possesses knowledge and intellect. So do we. God has feelings, emotions, the capacity to love and to hate. So do we. God has a will. Makes choices. So do we. Says Boyce, an animal does not reason as men do. It only reacts to certain problems or stimuli. It does not create. It only conforms to certain behavior patterns. Even in as elaborate a pattern as constructing a nest or a beehive or a dam. It does not love. It only reproduces. It does not worship personality in the sense we are speaking of here is something that links, links man to god but does not link either man nor god to the rest of creation we possess the attributes of personality in that sense we are the, in the image of god secondly voice says that image of god is reflected in the fact that man is created moral being by that he's talking about moral freedom and responsibility now to be sure uh, man's freedom is not absolute and because of sin and our responsibility for sin our freedom is even further reduced but we still have the capacity to recognize the difference between right and wrong the freedom to choose between them and the responsibility for the moral implications of our choices in that way we're unlike the animals we reflect the image of our creator who has absolute moral freedom voice's third suggestion is about about being made in the image of god concerns spirituality sure man has a body and in many ways is similar to the animals but only he possesses a spirit <clears throat> and on the level, it's on the level of the Spirit that man is aware of God and can commune with God. And as personality, morality, spirituality distinguishes him as made in the image of his God. Now, as good as Dr. Boyce's explanations are, I think there's actually one more that's a really powerful one that's suggested by our text notice in verse 26 that God uses the plural when speaking of himself. God says, let us make man in our image. Now in spite of loud objections that the writer of Genesis could not possibly have known this in his day, because this is God's word, we cannot help but interpret it in context of the rest of the word of god and when we do we cannot help but see here in the very first chapter of genesis a reference to the trinity the triune god father son and spirit such as the god of the bible we learn as we read the whole thing one who eternally dwells in perfect relationship within the godhead Three equal persons in relationship, one God. Then notice what God creates. God says, Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Now, God has not thought it important to discuss gender of the other beasts at all. But suddenly, when God refers to himself in the plural, he makes a point of the fact that man is made plural. Male and female. He created them. Paul Barth has a rather technical way of saying it. Let me just read. He says, could anything be more obvious than to conclude from this clear indication that the image and likeness of the being created by God signifies existence in confrontation. Existence in confrontation. That is, in this confrontation, in this juxtaposition, this conjunction of man and man, which is male and female. God made us in so many ways with layer upon layer of meaning God made us to reflect his image unique in all the creation. Now I know I'm guilty of it myself that we hasten to escape the crowded cities in order that we might get close to nature where we can see the glory of God's handiwork but this text tells us that the glory seen in nature the glory of the mountains and the rivers and the streams The glory of the eagles and the salmon and the bears. The glory of the sun and the stars and the lunar eclipse. That glory is nothing compared to this. God created man. To reflect his most brilliant glory. To reflect his own image. You're confronted with it every time you hear symphony. Music. Harmony. Conceived and written by man. Demonstrating his uniqueness as God's image bearer. You can see it at every art exhibit. Beauty formed out of the imagination and put on canvas. Made in the image the great artist, creator. You can't miss it every time you turn your computer on. Made and programmed by creative geniuses. Demonstrating the image of the creative genius. You can see man's uniqueness smiling back at you every time you look at a baby's face held in the arms of his mother or dad who together brought forth a living soul. Made the image of their creator. Make no mistake. God created you to reflect his glorious image. So why is it that man is the ugliest thing in the world why is it that everything that's disgusting about the earth has to do with us well because sin is in a depiction man became treasonous in his disobedience continues in his rebellion against the creator to this day and all the greatness of humanity All the intellect and the passion, all the creativity, the ability to build relationships, all the spiritual capacity, all the glory of the image-bearer is now turned to mutiny, to the pursuit of wickedness in one way or another. That's the picture God paints of us in Romans 1. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, Slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful—they invent ways of doing evil. And it starts very, very young. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. <laughs> well, you see, the very vileness the man is capable bears testimony to his uniqueness in creation. Bears testimony to the fact that he bears the image of the Creator. He's not just another brute beast. For the higher his creation, the greater his capacity, not only for good, but for evil. Or to put it in the simplest forms, which would be more dangerous if it turned on you? Your pet hamster? Or your pet Rottweiler. Well, obviously, the smarter and the stronger, the creature, the uglier, his rebellion. And so, man, having lost sight of who he is, and having defiled God's image in himself, now becomes a rebel with nothing left to lose. He becomes a lost soul filled with meaninglessness and despair. He becomes a mere creature trying to play the part of God and coming up empty with nothing. And so even the most brilliant and the most creative and the most awesome image bearers, now in sin, eat with sin, eating their hearts like cancer, self-destruct. Evidence is everywhere. And it's in you and me too. The image of God now defiled. And if you were God, you would probably say, enough of this image bearer. Done. But there's good news. God who made man in his image in the first place. Has come in human flesh, wonder of wonders, taking upon himself our image. <laughs> there in human flesh, he showed us what we've lost. The scriptures proclaim concerning Christ Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The Son. Is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being? He is the image of the invisible God. There in human flesh, as the perfect man, God the Son not only showed us perfectly what the image of God looks like, but then he took his perfect life and he laid it down as a sacrifice on the cross. To pay for our sins, to free us from this dominion of darkness, to liberate us from our slavery to sin by paying the debt we owe. And God, pleased with his Son, raised him from the dead. Now the glorified, perfect image-bearer, the God-man, Jesus. And once again, the glory of God The glory which God created man to show forth, the glory in which man was to live, has become a reality in the person of Jesus. Hebrews 2 reflects back on Psalm 8 that talks about man between the angels and the beast, and says this, It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there's a place, Psalm 8, where he said, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now the commentary. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to man, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God has fulfilled the original picture in this one person, Jesus, the perfect image bearer. But the most wonderful part is not just that God has fulfilled the original glorious plan or that Jesus has taken Our place to turn God's wrath away from us. The the good news is that he came to restore us with him. To bring many sons to glory. To give us back the status that we lost. To enable us to once again reflect the image of the creator as we were originally designed to do. So that we read of those who are in Christ in Colossians 3. That we are to put on the new self. Which is being renewed in the image of of its creator. God has recreated in us His image through Christ. Well, you see, here's the answer to our situation. Here's the restoration that our hearts long for, but which sin continues to resist. Here's the hope for significance today and security forever. Here, finally, we can understand our place in the universe. For it's defined by God the creator, what he made me to be, not by just my delusional dream. What is that great truth to which Christ came to restore us? The same thing that God created us to bear his image. Surely that's why God gave this message to Israel in the beginning. Back in the days of Moses, when God communicated this to his people. Why? Much has been made about the Genesis account being like the Babylonian creation myths. Israel knew those Babylonian creation myths. Archaeologists now know that those Babylonian myths are found in the libraries of Egypt way back before Israel was there as slaves. In fact, as Israel lived as a people, a slave people in Egypt for 400 years, they probably grew up on those Babylonian creation myths. They knew those things. But the Babylonian creation myths gave no reason for man to rejoice or find meaning in his life. Let me read you a little bit about Babylonian creation myth. You can see why James Orr said no stronger proof could be afforded of the truth and sublimity of the biblical account than the comparison of the narrative of creation with these mythological accounts found in other religions. Listen to this Babylonian description of the creation of man. Chaos is in the beginning, and therefrom are generated strange and peculiar forms. Men with wings and with two faces, or with heads and horns of goats, bulls with human heads, dogs with four bodies, etc. Over this welter, a woman presides called Ormica. Belus appears, cuts the woman in half. Of one half of her makes the heavens. Of the other, the earth, sets the world in order, finally makes one of the gods cut off his head, and from the blood which flowed forth, mixed with earth, forms intelligent man. No wonder the Canaanites, into whose land Israel was about to enter. The Canaanites, who had inherited the religious Traditions, the religious mythology of the Babylonians is their own religious history. No wonder they had such brutal practices, not only bowing down to every kind of rock and tree for fear of their land and their life, but sacrificing their children to their gods. No wonder. A man has no significance, and the gods are crazy. But you see, the true God. The creator of heaven and earth had called a people to be his own. He had gone to great lengths to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt and to bring them to this new land. But how will they end up being any different than any other brutal primitive tribe of nomads? They're not scholars. They're not statesmen. They're not theologians. They're a bunch of slaves who've been making bricks for 400 years but God arms them for the task. Arms them by bringing to them his truth. His word. They need to know what kind of creator created them so that they might worship him aright. Not like the nations. They need to know what kind of sovereign he is For he's given them his law, and they need to know what he has made them to be so that they might rise up above the rubble of sinful cultures and create a culture that reflects the beauty of the image of the creator as they were meant to be. that why God, is that not why God revealed this to his people? They needed to know him and to know themselves. And folks, you and I do too. We live in the midst of a lost humanity. It might not seem that way to you, living in our little cocoon. People don't know who or what they are or why they're here. People conceive of themselves as just another brute beast. This was powerfully demonstrated to me this week as I was studying this. I received an email from Melissa about some other subject, but in the conversation she told me of writing, of of, of a writing assignment she had given her students up at UBC this past week. She gave me permission to read some of this to you. Let me read it. She says, I assigned my students an in-class essay last Friday, a sort of diagnostic essay to assess their writing ability. And I had them answer the question, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Some of them just told me what they were doing in English 110, fulfilling my English requirement. But most of them were more philosophical. And their answers are so distressing. None of them know what they're doing here. They wrote things like this. Here's some quotes. The object of my efforts is to keep myself alive. I believe that I will figure it out in time. I know that I have chosen the path on which I walk, but I still ponder the question as to where the path came from. Each passing day, my own insignificance is further impressed on me. But in realizing my own pettiness, I can sympathize with the world, a world full of the insignificant. Or another. The reason I am here on earth is just to exist with others. And based on how I live my life, I'll be judged and end up in one of two places. Or another. Sometimes I don't even want to be here on earth. Life is suffering and it's up to me to suffer as little as possible. I do not believe there is a purpose for everyone's life. A person's existence is privileged, not destined. If one sees no purpose or is unsatisfied with his existence, there is always an easy way out. Again, I don't know what I'm doing here. And on and on, she says, what confusion! Not one of my students confessed faith in the God who created and sustained them. My heart aches for them, and I feel like saying to them, just come with me one Sunday. And you will hear a word that holds out life, abundant life. And she's right. For you see, if we understand who the Creator is and who we are created to be, God made us to reflect His image. And if we hear his word telling us of the Savior who came not just to show us the perfect image that we've lost but to recreate restore renew us to his perfect image once again. When we hear and embrace this glorious gospel our lives are transformed though so much is still the same everything is different let me illustrate again while studying these things while thinking deeply about what it means what are the implications of really understanding what it means to be an image bearer of god the creator and just after receiving that email from Melissa about the despair of those who don't understand, the mail came. And I got this little chapel form. I hope you got it in the mail. And I took a break to read it. Did you read Hosanna Damage's article? You gotta read it. Here is Hosanna self-consciously working to see and to understand every piece of truth in a way that gives glory back to her God in wh- whose image she delights to bear. Oh, sure, everything gives glory to God in the fact that it shows his handiwork uh, uh, like a piece of pottery shows the skill of the potter. But what can a clay What clay pot can rise up and sing the potter's praise? Indeed, rise up and call other clay pots to join in praise, understanding that every ounce of their being is a gift, a good gift from the creator. No, clay pots can't do that. Nor can mountains or mighty oceans, nor can beautiful flowers, nor can the most powerful or instinctive animals on the face of the earth none can offer themselves to God and know why and to whom they bow and thus delight to not only know him and bow before him but love him as we see Hosanna describing no one can do this but man may in God's image and restored by the work of Christ to that exalted role. Oh, this morning I tell you the most astounding truth. Something you could only know by revelation from the God who created heaven and earth. He made you to bear his image. Self-esteem, so important, so badly needed, everyone's looking in the wrong place. It's time to abandon our self-centered arrogance and abandon our petty experience and our imagined expertise. It's time to go back to the beginning and hear the word of the creator. God said let us make man in our image, in in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, in the bird of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move upon the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now there's a truth that makes us worth something. Amen. Oh Lord, we have only begun to scratch the surface of what it means to bear your image. And Lord, we are bombarded every day by a whole world telling us it's not true. That this most glorious thing about us is not true. Oh Lord, give us faith to take you at your word.